Blog Talk Radio. This is the Hellbender Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, Kyle Alexander Romines. Now, I'm an author from Kentucky. I graduated from the University of Louisville School of Medicine. My debut horror novel, The Keeper of the Crows, appeared on the preliminary ballot of the 2015 Bram Stoker Awards. I've written seven other books in horror, science fiction, fantasy, murder mystery, western, and thriller, and they're all available for purchase on Amazon in ebook and paperback. Now, on this show, I've been reviewing horror novels and interviewing authors. And I've been joined by some of my co-hosts and friends. Tonight, I'm joined again by my co-host, Joe Mills. Joe, will you introduce yourself for the new listeners in the audience? Hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Joe Mills, and I'm an avid fan of horror, terror, and thrillers in all media formats uh, with a strong emphasis in unabridged audiobook. I'm also a working professional in the IT industry with UPS. Uh, spending most of my time on the clock as a troubleshooter and off the clock as a nerd hobbyist. Been a committed member of the tabletop role-playing community since I was 14, and I'm also an aspiring audiobook narrator, and I am very happy to be here with you all today. All right, let's get started. I would like to introduce tonight's guest. John, how do you say your name, John? I, your last name? I meant to ask that before <laughs> we got started. I, I tell people to sneeze. It's Kachuba. Kachuba, Bless you. John Kachuba, the <laughs> author chocolate. of John is the author of the book Dark Entry. Um, Joe, will you read John's bio for our listeners? Absolutely. John's most recent book is Dark Entry, with Shapeshifters: A History scheduled for May publication. He's also the author of Ghost Hunting Ohio, On the Road Again, Ghost Hunting Ohio, Ghost Hunting Illinois and Ghost Hunters, as well as six other books unrelated to the paranormal. He's a frequent speaker on radio, TV, and podcasts, and at conferences, universities, and libraries. He teaches creative writing at Ohio University and humor writing through the Gotham Writers Workshop. To learn more and to see the author tour schedule, visit his website at www.johnkachuba.com. John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we've heard your bio. Why don't you tell our listeners about yourself in your own words, not just as a writer. Uh, take off your writer hat for a moment. What, describe yourself, your personality, the kind of person you are. <laughs> well, one of my children, my son, calls me a creepy ghost dude. So I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what that means. <laughs> but but it doesn't sound good. Um, you know, I didn't start as a writer uh, all my life, I I did write, even as a child, but uh, I got sidetracked after college and went into business for probably 20 years. Actually, Kyle, I was in the medical and pharmaceutical industry uh, for about 20 years in sales and marketing. And then after that, though, I, I decided I really wanted to devote my time to what had been an avocation all this time, which was writing. So when I hit 40, I just, uh, I quit the marketplace. I got out of 
the uh, corporate world and started writing full time. And it's been great since then. That's when the books have come. So I write a variety of things, as you mentioned, and I have a lot of interest, um, especially the paranormal. But I'm also interested in sort of the extension of that into metaphysical, spiritual sort of realm as well. So that's where Shapeshifters comes in. It's a little bit more than paranormal. It becomes cultural. In some areas, it becomes theological. Uh, So I have a broad spectrum of interest. History appeals to me in a big way, and one of my novels currently being marketed by my agent is historical fiction. And, in fact, the first book with – with Sunbury was the Savage Apostle, which is a historical novel taking place in 17th century New England. So I have a variety of interests, and I actually grew up in New England, live in Ohio right now too. So um, I don't know what else to say other than uh, I'm really not a creepy ghost dude. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny. Looking at your bio and the different, it reminded me a great deal of myself uh, I said up top that I've written books in all different genres, a Western, mm-hmm. murder mystery, thriller, science fiction, fantasy. Um, I, what, what do you think it is about it that, that, I mean, some writers confine themselves to one genre, but why do you think it is that you have all these different ideas in different genres? I, I think there's a couple of things. Um, I, I read widely, you know, I read widely in, in a lot of fields, both in nonfiction and I read all kinds of fiction. Uh, and I've always been interested, you know, I was an English major, you know, both my master's degrees are in creative writing and English. So that's all a liberal arts education. So I guess what I'm saying is I have a lot of broad interests. And what appeals to me is not necessarily a particular genre. I mean, yes, I like horror, but I also like history. I like humor. You know, I like adventure. I mean, there's a lot of different genres that I like. What appeals to me is the story, you know? So usually what happens is it's just some character that I discover, either a real person um, or somebody that, you know, I I visualize after maybe hearing a conversation or seeing an image or something, and then this character pops into my head. But it's, it's always the story. So, you know, depending on how it starts and how that character develops, I could end up with a you know, sci-fi, horror, uh, historical. I mean, you know, it's all about the story, not so much the genre. It sounds like you have a great imagination. Now, we, when we spoke earlier, you mentioned you were originally from Connecticut. Um, are, are you from Ohio? Are you based out of Ohio now? I am. I live in Cincinnati now, and I've been in Ohio oh, wow. for we're about – Oh, um, I, I know. When you I'm said from, Kentucky, and you, Louisville, I yeah, mean, you're right well, down the road. Louisville. Yeah, well, exactly. Um, that's, that's amazing. My sister, <laughs> my sister lives in Cincinnati, uh, Liberty Hill. Oh, no kidding. Oh, Liberty Hill. I just want to know that the pronunciation of Louisville could literally be its own podcast. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I, so, I caught so that, I, John. <laughs> yeah, so when I grew up in Connecticut, if somebody asked me about that, I would say, well, that's Louisville. But now that I live in Cincinnati, I know it's not Louisville. It's Louisville. <laughs> I know that. That's right. That's right. You're an honorary Kentuckian now. Um, well, <laughs> Thank you, you teach very creative much. writing. You teach creative writing. What's it like to teach writing? Uh, it's very interesting. I, I find that, well, first of all, I've taught, you know, a, a lot of different kinds of creative writing classes from working with grammar school kids 
right up to, you know, senior citizens, retired folks. In fact, I just got back from two months uh, touring five different countries in Asia. And in one of my locations in Cambodia, I actually gave a writing workshop to Cambodian college students in Phnom Penh uh, through the American Embassy. So, so I have a, a broad kind of spectrum of types of um, creative writing that I've done. But I like it because I find that I think I might get more out of the class and my students than they're getting out of me. I always find myself energized after working with the students. I find that they have ideas and thoughts that either I had put away years ago and forgotten about or are brand new. And I say, you know, I can use that myself. <laughs> so it's a two-way street. I really, um, I really like that. It's a lot of give and take, and I feel that I walk away with as much information as hopefully they're getting from me. I also wanted to note, you teach humor writing. Now, I've always found humor, I've I've always personally found humor to be the most difficult aspect to incorporate into a story. And and granted, now I write some scary books, but even my non-related, my non-horror books, um, humor is very difficult for me to write. How how do you go about writing humor? (laughs) You have to take my class, (laughs) find out. (laughs) No, it's... um... It, it is difficult, and I, I don't think that everybody well, – okay, everybody, I think, has a sense of humor, but I don't think that everybody, everybody is capable of developing it to the point where they can write about it or whatever. For instance, I can't tell jokes. You know, I can't tell jokes at all. I don't remember them. When I try to tell them, I mangle them, and somebody looks at me and says, well, I don't get it. You know, when they tell you don't get it, you know you're in trouble, Right. So, um, but I can write humor. Um, I don't know how to explain how I do it without really taking a whole class, but I think that we all have some innate ability. Uh, You know, humor is a human quality. We all have it to some degree. So what my class does is it just tries to develop that quality. I don't claim that when somebody finishes my class, they're going to be, you know, a great humor writer. They're going to be Mark Twain or Andy Borowitz or somebody like that or, Get a, get a spot on the Stephen Colbert show or something. No. But what I'm hoping they can do is at least inject some humor into whatever it is they're writing, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, just to sort of, um, you know, maybe lighten it up a little bit, bring a different mood to the reader. Uh, but I'm not expecting them to come out of this being great humorists. I mean, I would like that, but I don't think that's going to happen, and it's not going to happen for me either. All right. Well, are you up for a game? Are you up for a little game? I am. (laughs) All right. Well, for our listeners, um, John writes, as I mentioned, in a variety of nonfiction. So we are about to play a little game. So, John, in two sentences or less, name (laughs) for each book, name each of your books, and describe them in two sentences or less for each one. Uh, each book. Okay. Uh, so it's, let's see. Well, go ahead. <laughs> what are you going to say? I, I just, I it's told, always difficult. I, I was giving you a little time to think there because I know that every yeah. time you write a new book, you're pushing those old characters aside and they get dustier and dustier. So I'm putting you on the spot here. Uh, man, you are. You want fiction or you want nonfiction? Or you want everything? I want it all, every book you've written. 
You want to know? Okay, well, we'll start with ones coming out in May. Uh, shapeshifters of history. Two sentences. Uh, shapeshifters have been with us since time began. Are they real or not? Okay, Ghost Hunter of Ohio. Uh, Ghost Hunting Ohio on the road. On the road again. Um, uh, the most haunted places in Ohio that I've ever visited and researched. Uh, find out for yourself what's there. Uh, ghost hunting Ohio. Uh, this is a precursor to ghost hunting Ohio on the road again. Uh, period. More of the same. Uh, ghost hunters. And ghost hunters, by the way, has a very long subtitle. It says ghost hunters uh, on the road with mediums, dows, or spirit seekers, and other investigators of America's paranormal world. So it's a long subtitle. Um, let's see, two sentences. It, uh, this is a collection of some of the top celebrities in the paranormal field that I've investigated, uh, or, or I should say interviewed. Um, let's see another sentence quickly, quickly. Uh, I think you'll find their stories to be interesting uh, and it's worth the read. How about that? Uh, let's see, where am I? Savage Apostle, the Savage Apostle. Uh, in 17th century New England, a 50-year peace between the Wampanoag Indians and the English colonists in Plymouth falls apart. Uh, the consequences are disastrous and set the trend for Native American and American government relations for the next couple centuries. Wow, you think I had that written down someplace. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Let's see. That was kind of recent. Uh, where am I? Where am I? Savage Apostle. Um, mm-hmm. Well, let's see. You still got Dark uh, oh, Entry Ghost to go. Yeah. <laughs> hey, how about that? Dark Entry. Thank you. <laughs> dark Entry. So a historical, a historical novel, really, based on an alleged location, a haunted location in Connecticut. Um, people today still think that there is uh, paranormal activity up there. You can decide after reading the novel. Uh, Ghost hunting Illinois. There you go. Uh, top 30 places in Illinois that are alleged to be haunted. Uh, I, inter- I went to all the places and researched them myself and wrote about them. And they're all open to the public. Uh, whew, what else? I think it's about it. I mean, there's a couple of e-books up there. Did I leave anything out? Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think this only shows can... how much he's really written. He. I know. <laughs> I know. He's impressive. Um, John, where can folks go to purchase your books? Uh, well, most of them you can get hopefully in bookstores if they're still around. Uh, but they're also available on Amazon. They're available on almost uh, – any internet site like Barnes and Noble or any of those folks, they usually carry my books as well. So you can find them on the web. You can go to my website and you can get a direct link uh, to there if you want to do it that way. But a lot of them should still be in bookstores. Um, the ghost books particularly are pretty popular. Um, so you can find those. And I found two others. I just forgot how to write funny and why is this job killing me, but I won't go into detail on those. <laughs> they just popped in my mind. <laughs> Well, why don't we talk? You mentioned Dark Entry. That's a great segue. Joe Mills, will you read the book summary? Absolutely. In the 18th century, members of the Dudley family settled in the deep woods of the Dark Entry Forest in northwestern Connecticut. Only a century later, Dudleytown was a ghost town 
with nothing left in the encroaching forest but cellar holes. Legend has it that the Dudleys were descended from a family in England that came to a bad end, and that a curse followed them to America, a curse that drove residents of the settlement to murder and suicide. In 1989, Sandy Lawrence, fleeing her abusive boyfriend, is given the use of her friend's house in Dark Entry, one of the few homes in the isolated forest. She is unaware of the legends about Dark Entry, but soon discover the horrifying truth. Something evil is alive and well in the deep woods. Something intent upon murder. What began as a peaceful retreat from her domestic troubles now becomes a terrifying fight for her life. Now, in, in this line of work, I read a lot of descriptions, a lot of summaries, uh, uh, plot summaries. Dark entry summary is very gripping. Like, that's one that I read and I said, I, I want to read this book. Uh, if you're out there and you like, if, if you're out there and you like listening to horror, reading horror, check out Dark Entry based on the strength of that description alone. Um, yep. I really like the historical. I really like the historical angle that it begins in the 1800s. Um, Joe, it reminds me of the game we've been playing in our board game group, uh, Betrayal Legacy. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say something. Why, why don't you tell the listeners uh, about how our first game went, what what the scenario was like? So we, uh, Kyle and I are part of a board game group, and we've been playing a legacy game known as uh, Betrayal Legacy, and it's a game based on Betrayal on the House on the Hill. And in it, in the Betrayal Legacy, you actually adopt a family name and crest, and every time you play, you're moving the story, by about, the story forward by about 30, 40 years. And we played the prologue, which was set in, I believe, in 1666. And it involved a witch hunt. And I will say that things got pretty wild pretty quick. And... It was a very interesting game, and honestly, the gameplay and the descriptions on the cards and all the elements of the game did a very good job of drawing us in and helping us to feel the, the chill and like some of the, the terror that comes along with you know the idea of being in, in a house where things strange things are afoot. Well, and why don't we go ahead? And, all right, here's a spoiler warning for anyone who wants to play Betrayal Legacy. Joe... Tell the listeners what the first scenario is. Gotcha. So essentially, uh, one person begins the haunt, and uh, everyone has to scratch off a card. They're given a card with the same type of material that a scratch off, like a lottery scratch off, has. And you scratch it off to desert, to find out if you are a villain or just a regular player, like a regular human or a witch. And so a witch hunt begins. And so there are accusations flying back and forth across the table. And um, the longer everyone survives, the worse their sanity gets until, you know, so, until everyone, last person is alive or, you know, everyone dies or, and whatnot. So at the end, it actually turns out there wasn't a witch. No one was the witch. Um, everyone <laughs> who scratched those cards was a regular human being. And they thought that at least one other person was the witch. And so things got pretty dirty when we were playing. <laughs> you took out Lauren pretty fast, if I recall. All right, we're going we're gonna to skip over that part. Uh, John, with your background in nonfiction, uh, is this a purely fictional story? I know it's, great. it's based set in Connecticut. Is it grounded in any historical basis or, or something familiar to you? 
Yeah, it's um, it's grounded in in some history. I mean, I readily admit that it's fiction and that I've taken some liberties with the history, you know. But there is a um, there is a town. There is well, there is the remains of a town up on a mountain in northwestern Connecticut, and it is called Dark Entry. That's the nickname. It was originally settled as Dudley Town. Uh, you heard you, know, you mentioned the family of Dudleys. Back in the 1740s, the Dudleys came from England, and they settled. Uh, the family settled up in this area, and gradually other people came to join them. So there was a town, and they were uh, primarily they made uh, they were charcoal burners. They would cut down the forest and make charcoal, uh, and send it down to the town below the mountain, which was Cornwall, and is still there as well. Uh, so they'd sell their charcoal, and in fact. So, so they were kind of an isolated community in that they were up on top of this mountain. And down below was a more, more prosperous, still rural, but more prosperous town of Cornwall. And the Cornwall people would talk to their kids, and to, to scare them, they would say that if they weren't good, they would send them up to the, as they said, the Dudley Town boogeymen up top of the hill, up top of the mountain. And they called them that because these guys, like I said, were charcoal burners. So they were literally most of the time they were they were black. I mean, from soot and chemical and all this stuff, they were they were dirty looking a lot of people up there. Uh, so all this is this is all true, you know. And the town itself, Dudley Town, only lasted roughly about a century, uh, and gradually you know people left. But how they left and what happened to the town is is still controversial because it was it was riddled with a lot of sort of misfortune and accidents and just a lot of bad stuff. Uh, there was, there were murders up there. There was uh, early on at one time, an entire family was uh, scalped by Indians early on when it was settled. Um, some people were literally driven insane over the years. Uh, as I said, there were suicides uh, there was a duel where two guys actually shot each other to death. There, there was a lot of wow. sort of misfortune. Yeah, it's just just weird stuff. It was a very small community, and all this stuff was going on. Now, uh, some of this is undocumented, you know, and people say, well, it's not really what happened. Other things, other documents would say, well, these things happened, but they had other reasons. What came out of this was the idea that Dudley Town was cursed that if you live there, you're cursed. And part of this comes back from an old English legend. Uh, there were a couple of famous Dudleys back in England, and I don't remember their first things. I think one was Robert. Anyway, there were at least two of them that over a period of 100 years or so, these two guys uh, at different time periods got on the wrong side of the monarch and ended up beheaded. So this became like the Dudley family curse. Now, those beheadings are true. They happened. Uh, the question is even whether that Dudley family is the same Dudley family that came to America. So things are sketchy. You know, that's why I say it's history, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of gaps here. There's a lot of room for interpretation. But, you know, the, the belief is that there was a curse up there, not the poor people of Dudley Town that, that suffered all these uh, horrible uh, events were were cursed by this this family. So in the novel, I changed the curse to being a Native American curse from a Native American sachem who was murdered by one of the Dudley Town uh, villagers years back, you know, over property and that kind of thing. So I changed the curse around a little bit 
Um, but I still have a lot of the events that were alleged to have occurred. I still record a lot of those things. And, and of course, again, elaborate, embellish, and, you know, <laughs> add my own little touch of horror to it all. But I have to tell you, this, inter- this is interesting because Dark Entry Now is a, um, it's a preserve. There are about, I don't know, maybe half a dozen homes up on the mountain in Dark Entry. These are newer houses now. These aren't the old villagers' homes that are nothing but cellar holes. These are new homes. And the people have uh, the property in common. And so they call it Dark Entry Preserve. And I don't know how they heard about this, but I got a letter about uh, two years ago, maybe, from the Dark Entry Forest Preserve Association. And the letter said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it said basically, we understand that you're writing a novel about dark entry and we don't want you to write that novel about dark entry. <laughs> what? And if you, you, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it gets better. And if you do write that novel, uh, we will take legal action against you. And they also said, not only writing, you also, we do not want you to speak about dark entry anywhere. Okay. So the letter is signed dark entry forest preserve association. No name on it. <laughs> it's just, all right. So I got that, and I thought, first of all, I don't know how they, under, how they heard that I was doing this, but I said, you've got to be kidding me. And, you know, i got some First Amendment rights here, and I'm not, I'm not falling for this, you know. But it's interesting that there was enough, um, what would I say, maybe paranoia on their part that they were afraid of this novel, you know. So, so a little sideline there, but pretty interesting. No, that that was fascinating, and, and my question for you, the follow up, the follow up to that is, everything you just said was was steeped in history, and you're not the first right. guest. We had Michael Hawley um, a few weeks ago who wrote the Jack the Ripper nonfiction and fiction novels. Um, mm-hmm. But what what kind of research do you do for your books? Well, for one thing, I went to Dark Entry. You know, I mean, I went up there and visited the location myself to see what it was like, to get the feel for it, to get the sense of it, you know, and it was creepy. Um, I mean, I went up there and, uh, I, like I said, I found all these abandoned cellar holes, you know, and Dark Entry is such a fitting name for the place because it is so overgrown by the forest. Uh, it is dark. I mean, on a bright, sunny day, it, the sun barely penetrates in there. It's uh, It's very, very eerie to say the least. Uh, and so you're walking along these, you know, a road that is now half overgrown with weeds and, and rutted and everything else. And you find these little cellar holes and all these big, you know, shady trees and it's dark. It's creepy. I found a, in one of the cellar holes, I found a Ouija board and some black candles that were half melted. So, oh you know, people... Yeah, yeah. So people were going up there, you know, doing who knows what, you know, rituals and all this kind of stuff. Um, but so, so I visited the place. I also went and talked with um, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who some of your audience may, may know them. They are, I call them America's godfather and godmother of ghost hunting. Uh, they're the ones that broke the Amityville horror story. Uh, all the movies you see now, like The Conjuring and all that that's about the Warrens and, yeah. and I know those folks. Yeah. They lived in Connecticut. I've been to their home. I, you know, I knew both of them. Um, Ed, Lor- Ed I was actually going to ask you later in the interview if you knew anything about Ed and Lorraine. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. that's fantastic. That's a, 
that's another story. But so I went to that house uh, because I had, so what happened is when I went up to dark entry, I, I took photos and I took a bunch of pictures in the cellar holes and all this kind of stuff. And these were in the days before digital camera. I mean, I'm a little, you know, a little long in the tooth, as they say, you know, so uh, this was, this was print and film, but I took these pictures and I noticed when I got them back that in one of the cellar holes, I saw what looked like a, like a face in this cellar hole. And I said, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Oh, there must be a bunch of leaves and all that just came together. It looked like a face. So I started enlarging it to, you know, to prove that it was leaves. Well, the more I enlarged it, the more it became defined as a face, <laughs> which I was not expecting. <laughs> mm. So I, I called the Warrens and I said, look, I went to dark entry. I don't know anything about it, but I got these great pictures and uh, I'd like you to take a look at them. And they said, well, come over to the house. I went over to the house and I showed them the picture. And no sooner than I put number one photo down on the table and Ed goes, yep, that's it. That's a haunting. <laughs> Just like so matter of factly, you know, like, yeah, sure. Okay. And then they pull out a, a photo album. And they start leafing through, I don't know, 50, 60 photos that they had taken on several of their visits up to Dudley Town. It's actually called Dudley Town more than Dark Entry. But several visits that they had made up there. And they had all these various, all these weird anomalies in the photos. Like they had these, you know, orbs and they had red streaks going through it and all this stuff. So there was, you know, something out there. And that really, when I saw my photo sort of came in line with some of the things they were getting after many times that they've been up there. I was pretty impressed with that. And then I went to the uh, historical society as well, the Cornwall historical society and spent a lot of time there doing research um, on historical records of the area and reading old books that had been written about, about Dudley town, about Cornwall, you know? So, so I mean, I did some serious historical research on this as well as I guess, paranormal research, you know? Well, where where did the idea, where was the genesis of the story? Where did it first come from? What when did it pop into your head? You said, "I want to write a book about this." Well, I keep a file of of any little. It's a clipping file. If I see something, it used to be in the newspapers. Now it's printing something off the internet. But you know, any little thing that just triggers my imagination, weird little little snippets of things, I write them in a notebook or I clip them if I can and put them in a file. And as a teenager, I guess, growing up in Connecticut, I came across something. I don't know if it was in an almanac or whatever. It was just a little paragraph about Dudley Town. And she said something like, you know, this is a ghost town now in Connecticut and people went crazy or something along those lines. And I just ripped it out and stuck it in a file and thought, well, that's interesting. Never did anything with it. And then I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what finally triggered it literally a couple of decades later for me to actually go up to Dudley town and take a look at it and explore it. I, I can't remember what the trigger was at that point, but it had always been in the back of my mind, you know, it had been in that folder uh, for, you know, decades before I even picked it up again. Um, but. Well, the author is John Kachuba, like the sneeze. And the book <laughs> is Dark Entry. I'm Kyle Alexander Romines, the host of the Hellbender radio show. And Joe, we are going to play another little segment where Joe, our resident audio narrator, 
we'll read an excerpt from John's book, Dark Entry. But first, let me play the introduction to our segment, our recurring segment, Scary Stories with Joe. never liked coming up the mountain to Dudley Town. It wasn't just the steep climb up the narrow, twisting road to the village that bothered him. Although at his advanced age, he sometimes thought that hike would kill him. But his unease was caused more by the villagers themselves. They were a rough lot, taciturn and obstinate in their ways. Rarely did they descend from Coltsfoot Mountain, and that was just fine with the people that lived in the flatlands below. The same people that coerced their misbehaving children into obedience by threatening to send them up the mountain to the Dudley Town boogeyman if they didn't mind their manners. If his sister Lucinda had not married one of the Dudley Town charcoal burners against his advice, of course, he would not now be trekking up the mountain, sweating, sweating beneath the warm July sun. There were spots of shade along his route on Dark Entry Road that offered some comfort, but much of the mountain had been denuded of trees, felled by the villagers for the making of charcoal. In the open areas alongside the road, he could see several huge piles of smoldering wood and the sooty men who tended them. Some of them stood up high atop the mounds, wielding long poles. Smoke was thick in the air, filling his lungs, the acrid odor burning his nostrils. His eyes watered in the pungent air. How could these people live up here, he wondered, for perhaps the thousandth time? No sane man would want to be a charcoal burner. Poor Lucinda, what a life she could have she could have had. He never understood what she saw in Quentin Randolph, but whatever it was, to make her reject the schoolmaster's marriage proposal, a much better match, Phillips thought, and run off to Dudley Town with Randolph. And what had she gained? A tiny house atop a mountain, and a silent and moody man with a violent temper. Poor Lucinda. Were it not for her young son, and the fact that she was the youngest of all the siblings, the one he thought most in need of care, he would have left her to, the, to her wild mountain men. But nothing less than his Christian duty moved him to look in on her and the boy now and then, as he was doing now, beneath a sun that seemed to be growing hotter with each step he took. He passed a few small cottages nestled in a, among the trees, simple dwellings that seemed to spring up from the earth. They were unpainted, although moss grew on some of them, covering them in green like exotic plants taking root beneath the trees. He saw no one at the houses. At last he arrived at the end of Dark Entry Road. A small track led off to the right. His, sister, his sister's house lay off that path, but he could not proceed because a horse-drawn wagon was creaking up the track. The wagon was filled with charcoal, and the man who sat on the wagon seat was black with grime and soot. Phelps stood aside as the wagon approached, the unsmiling driver giving the reverend a barely perceptible nod of his head as he passed. Phelps walked down the track and arrived at Lucinda's house. Hers was newer than the others and had not yet been attacked by the surrounding vegetation, except for a fragrant honeysuckle bush that pushed itself up against one side of the house. He stepped up on the stone doorstep and rapped on the door. No answer. 
He knocked again, louder this time. The house remained silent. Lucinda? She did not reply. He tried the door and found that it was unlocked. He pushed the door open and stepped inside. Lucinda? The small parlor in which he stood, his hat in his hand, was dim. Only a meager ray of sunshine entering the room from a little window at the back. Nothing seemed to miss in the room. There was the rocker by the hearth, a round table with two chairs, an oil lamp upon the table. Dried bunches of herbs hung from the rafters. The door to the bedroom was closed. Phelps walked over to it and tapped on the door. Lucinda, he said softly. It's me, Thomas. No answer. Quentin? He turned the knob and slowly pushed the door open. The room was darker than the parlor, the shade drawn down over the single window, so it took his eyes a few moments to adjust to the low light. Lucinda's body lay upon the bed, clad in a blood-soaked white nightgown. A bloody axe lay like a lover on the bed beside her. Lucinda's head looked up at him from the floor. He gagged, staggering against the door frame. He felt dizzy, liable to faint. His heart pounded, and he could hardly catch his breath. Somehow, he found his way out of the house and leaned against the wall, trying to suck in fresh air, but tasting only the poisoned air from the charcoal fires. He fell to his knees, the gorge rising with him, as he heaved into the weeds, coughing and sputtering. After a few moments, he recovered and rose to his feet. Quentin, it, it, it must have been Quentin. And where was the boy? Anger and fear burst inside him simultaneously. His legs still shaky, he forced himself to move. He noticed the barn behind the house and saw the door was open. Quentin must be inside, he thought. He stalked towards the barn, his rage conquering his fear of the man. Quentin! He reached the barn and hesitated only a moment before entering. Quentin was inside the barn. He hung by his neck from a rope tied around a rafter, his face swollen like a purple watermelon. His eyes popped out of his head. A ladder lay on the dirt floor beneath his gently swaying body. The Reverend Phelps once again fell to his knees. I have to tell you, John, that's one heck of a prologue. Uh, you know, the reading was great. I was listening to it myself going, wow, this is pretty good. <laughs> Who wrote this? Thank you. <laughs> that's great. Whoever that guy was, he knew what he was well, doing. <laughs> well, if anyone out there is listening and you need an audiobook narrator, Joe's available. Um, Joe, I tell you what, while we've got you, will you read some Amazon reviews of Dark Entry? See what the people Absolutely. are saying? So our first review is five out of five stars. Gripping, gripping thriller will keep you turning pages faster and faster. An advanced review copy was provided by the publisher without obligation of any kind. This re review reflects the honest and voluntary opinion of Irish Chacon. 
Are you looking for a captivating, imaginative, literally haunting story? Then you'll find John Kachuba's dark entry is just what the doctor ordered. Before the doctor was murdered, of course, but I digress. What does one do after escaping an abusive boyfriend? Why, hide out at a friend's isolated forest cabin atop Hana Mountain, of course. Naturally, things will go bump in the night. Uninvited visitors will show up. Some of them very dangerous people, or not people. And you should expect to find surprises of the good, bad, and ugly kinds around every turn. Before Sandy Lawrence arrives at her girlfriend's remote cabin, the reader already knows that things scarier than a mean ex-boyfriend are lurking in the Dark Mountain Woods. You will eagerly follow Sandy's story from page to page to page, growling at anyone or anything that tries to divert you before you finish reading the book. Dark Entry is perfect for curling up by the fireside on an autumn evening. If you can read it in a cabin in the woods, so much the better. Dark Entry <laughs> contains brutal murders, domestic violence, and frightening supernatural beings and events. This book is probably too intense for young children, but it does not contain erotica or excessive cursing. That was a good, uh, that was a good uh, thing at the end there. Make sure everyone... Okay, I like it. Uh, next one, mm-hmm. titled Well Worth a Read, 4 out of 5 stars. I love ghost stories set in New England. This was a quick read that begins with a horrifying act in the 18th century before our unsuspecting main character heads to a house in those cursed woods to clear her head after an upsetting breakup. Sandy doesn't know the stories of the spirit eater that haunts these grounds, and evil ghosts that preys on souls. Not long after arrival, she learns of the local ghost stories, but it takes more takes more than folk tales to make her a believer. I love ghost stories set in New England. As a lifelong resident, I've always been interested in the spooky tales that abound in our small towns. Looking this cover is like looking through my own childhood window at night. So, of course, I was instantly drawn to this book. John, and it then sounds like I, so You go ahead, Joe. Uh, i got to say, um, even just from the prologue, I can definitely understand the intense interest that these readers had. Um, I'm really liking that, especially someone from the New England setting is per- personally identifying with your books, John. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, well, John, well, what do you, you like best? Well, you go ahead. Yeah. You go ahead. No, I, I was just gonna say, um, I had I had heard one or two of those reviews, but I hadn't heard them all. That's it's it's comforting to hear those because there's always other ones that aren't as great. So, so you like to hear the good ones. But uh, those people are right on, I think, in terms of how they're viewing the book. So that's good. Well, what do you like best about the process of writing, or just being an author? And as a counterpoint, what do you like the least? I think what I like best is just the uh, the act of discovery. You know, uh, some people, especially in novels, when they write novels, have very detailed outlines and and know exactly where that's going to go and everything else like that. Um, I, and I don't I don't work that way at all. You know, I basically have kind of a rough idea or maybe a character, and I just start playing around with it. I just say, okay, here, here you go. You're on the page. You know, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Um, and I think that's a lot of fun for me, and it's and it's interesting. Uh, you sometimes go down rabbit holes that you then have to back up again and say, okay, that's not the right one. You know, go down this one. Well, that's not the right one either. But eventually, you find your way. You find the right path, and and you got a story. Uh, so I think that whole idea of uh, discovery and exploration, I find that just you know very interesting. Um, the hardest part, you know, I don't know. Um, 
I think maybe um, I think maybe what I just described, although it's exciting and has a lot of discovery into it, is is kind of hard too if you don't really have a sort of firm idea where you want to go, uh, because there are times when I'll sit in front of the computer, and I'll sit in front of the computer, and I'll sit in front of the computer. <laughs> And I'll sit in front of the computer and I haven't done anything. Um, so, you know, so that, so there's that. And I think that's probably the, the downside of it. Um, but there really isn't anything I, I don't like about the process. Uh, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't. I mean, this is what I do full time. So, you know, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't really just love what I was doing. Now, you also write, we mentioned earlier, ghost hunting books. And that begs the obvious question. Uh, most of my research was done uh, into dark entry, um, but like I said, it begs the obvious question: Are, are you a ghost hunter? Well, um, I was to do the books. You know, I have two ghost hunting books about Ohio and one about Illinois. Uh, and so, for those books, I mean, I did all the research personally. So, so yes, I can say that I I've been a ghost hunter. I've probably investigated. I guess just domestically, probably over a hundred locations, but I've always worked with other sort of, um, you know, ghost hunting groups. I mean, they're all over the place. Ohio's got a bunch. Kentucky's got a bunch. In fact, you have a very famous ghost hunter in Lexington, Patty Starr in Kentucky, who is, uh, you know, a big name in that. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done all that and I know sort of the techniques and, and sort of how you go about doing it. Um, I wouldn't call myself a ghost hunter in the sense that I'm not out there now just doing it for fun. I was doing it primarily for the research. Um, it's pretty interesting uh, experiences, though, sometimes. I mean, sometimes things came up that you just said, okay, I know what I saw, I know what happened, but I don't know how and I don't know what it means. <laughs> so uh, it's, been, it's been fun. But... Well, John, believe it or not, our own Joe Mills, has a has a ghost story that he'd like to share with you. Sure. I just got to ask, John, um, I, I guess uh, you said you listened to a couple of the previous podcasts. You didn't happen to catch last week's, did you? I don't think so. Okay. I just want to make sure before I, depending on detail. Um, okay. I, I went over it over in last week's episode in greater detail, but uh, when I was in college, I went with some friends to the Perryville Battlefield because they wanted to go ghost oh, yeah. hunting and uh, some things did go down uh, minor things, but like a, there was basically like a swing set that com- that went from uh, the swing went from stock still to complete like top height that they can get swing swinging back and forth on a night where there was no wind. And then about two weeks oh. later um, something happened in, I was, I was staying at my grandparents' house at the time going to college. I was sleeping in the basement and I uh, had the sense that I was being watched and that since only intensified until um, there was a loud crash upstairs, at, like at the height of me feeling the worst of like someone's right above me looking at me right now and they want me to know it. And uh, hmm. when I got up the next day, the clock had, uh, it's possible it could have rolled all the way across the room, but it was carpet. So that I think the friction might have stopped it, but clock went all the way across the room. It was dead stopped on 313 and that clock never worked again. <laughs> and it went across the room. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm telling you, like, yeah, that because it was <laughs> it was hung up on a nail on one side yeah. of the room, and when I went upstairs yeah. the next day, it was on the other side of the room, and that nail had not like I could understand that the clock had fallen, and then it because the nail had come loose and fallen with it. Sure. But the nail was still solid, like sturdy in the wall. 
Right, and the clock would have fallen straight down and probably been right below the nail, you know, on the floor somewhere, right? Right. In pieces. And, and I'll, it I'll, it's, it's a round room. clock. It's a round yeah, plastic okay. clock. It could have made rolled some distance if it if it hit right, and that's fine. But honestly, yeah. the distance was a little too hard to be believable on its own. And then the timing yeah. was really what got it for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> well, you know, Perryville, too. I mean, I, I, I've i been to Perryville. I wasn't ghost hunting at the time, but I've been down there. And battlefields are, you know, they're, they're big areas for ghost hunters. I mean, especially like Gettysburg is a big one. and It's, it's understandable. Well, Joe, as our resident ghost hunter, do you have any questions about – Ghost hunting or John's um, John's ghost hunting books you'd like to ask? Um, I will qualify. I will not consider myself a ghost hunter. I did the one, and I had the two things that happened after that, or technically one during and then two after. So um, I'm done. I'm I'm out. I'm retired from ghost hunting. Um, <laughs> but as far as ghosting for you, John, like, would you definitely say was it? Was it meeting with Ed Lorraine? Like, what was the most interesting philosophical moment for you when you were ghost hunting? What was the the, the event or the thought that occurred that hit you most? Like, let's say on a like a deep thought or like a spiritual level. Um, well, I think you sort of mentioned the warrants, and I think it's it's not not exactly a thought, but spending time with them and in their house, surrounded by their house was very bizarre. I mean, I sat in the house and it was just loaded all the walls, all the tables, everywhere you can look with like religious icons and statues and crucifixes and crosses and, you know, every, everywhere you looked. Um, And then of course they have behind their house, they have a barn which houses the Warren occult museum. And in there, they have objects that they've collected throughout their years as ghost hunters that are haunted. For instance, there's a famous uh, Raggedy Ann doll that's haunted. Uh, and it's it's locked. It's literally locked in a glass case. And it says, you Isn't know, that the item that they case. had blessed once a month. I uh, remember correctly. I'm, but... not, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But they have all these kinds of items. So, So what I'm getting at is that, you know, sitting down with them, and, and working with them a little bit and understanding their approach to the paranormal, to ghosts, and understanding how different it was from mine, I thought was, was an eye-opener. Because for them, what it comes down to is a very – it's a theological event. It's a religious event. It's, it's God versus the devil. Uh, for them, ghosts, hauntings are – the work of the devil it's it's an evil kind of satanic thing uh so they so they have all this religious trappings with them when they go into places and well when they did i mean uh, uh lorraine now is probably gosh she's probably 82 83 years old if not older and she's kind of retired at this point of course ed has passed away but when they used to do it i mean they were very much uh, on a religious bent and and that's not the way i look at it i look at it more as um, well, I don't want to say science. That sounds a little bit too uh, too high caliber. But I, I look at it as, you know, what's going on here? Is is this a natural phenomena that we don't understand yet? Um, is it truly the work of a discarnated person? Uh, and if so, 
what's the nature of that? Um, I, I, I do not subscribe to the good versus evil, God versus devil, you know, sort of program that they do. I'm thinking, you know, I have, I have deceased relatives. I'm, if they came back as a ghost, I would not think that they were devils. I would think that was my grandfather come back, you know, (laughs) they're they're my family. They're not devils. They're not demons. So, um, so, so I think that whole, um, some of the conversations I had with them, being around with them a little bit, reading some of their books, finding out how they worked, uh, was uh, was a real eye opener because it, it differed so much from my viewpoint. And I have to say that I think if you talk to people in the paranormal community, paranormal investigators that do this, you'll find uh, a fair number that approach it the same way the Warrens do, and you'll find probably an equal number, maybe more that approach it in a more, again, I'll use the word in quotes, but a more scientific way, you know, trying to understand the nature of it without getting uh, in the weeds about uh, theology and religion and all that. So, so that was big. It Actually, it's worked a lot on sort of how I think about things. I mentioned earlier that I have interests in, you know, the metaphysical and spiritual realm and ideas, and that, that shaped me a little bit there too and what I think, so. Well, uh, John, in a moment, Joe will be asking you a random mystery question. It's another little game (laughs) segment that we play. While Joe prepares to perplex and bewilder you with his question, I will ask you a couple more questions. We're getting closer to the end of our show. But why don't you tell us, your bio mentions that you've won numerous awards. Why don't you tell us about some of the awards you've won and how you were selected or applied or chosen for the awards? Well, most of the awards that I won uh, have been uh, actually for fiction, and they've been short stories. Uh, and there isn't any there isn't any magic other than entering. You know, as, as you probably know, a lot of literary journals have contests all the time. You pay a fee, you enter the contest, and there's usually a series of judges that are uh, pretty high caliber writers. Usually, and they're picked always different judges every year, and they go through the couple hundred manuscripts they have, and they. They, they choose the one they like the best. Uh, I, I've been lucky a few times there. Um, one was the Gemini Prize was one. Dogwood Fiction is another one. Those are both uh, first prize awards for those literary journals. But I've also been um, honored by the Thurber House, and I appreciate that. That's James Thurber's old home in Columbus, Ohio, which is now a literary center. And they've invited me a couple of times to give a humor writing course up there, also to do part of their summer series, which is where you, where a writer comes in and literally at a picnic <laughs> reads his work, and there's a contest involved with that. And I won their third retreat award, which is a humor writing award. Uh, so it's been those kinds of things. Um, and I appreciate those all the time. Anytime people outside of your immediate family, <laughs> other than your wife, you know, anytime somebody besides your wife or your husband says, Hey, I like your your writing, and I'm going to give her an award because we like it that much. Yeah, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel like, hey, you know what? Maybe you're getting something done here. So I've been happy. Good. With those. Good. Now you alluded to this earlier, um, but just again, since uh, people are listening and might want to buy your stuff uh, or should want to after the excellent excerpt yeah. that we heard in the description <laughs> and reviews. Where can listeners go to find more about you? About 
Well, the best exactly. thing is probably just to go to my yeah. The best thing is to go to my website, uh, which uh, Joe had mentioned before. It's johnkachuba.com. Uh, it's J O H N K A C H U B A, and I think you probably have it on your website. Um, but that's got everything on there. It's got all my books, and it has uh, a description of all of them. It has direct links. If they can't find them in a bookstore, it has links to Amazon, uh, Dark Entry. It has links directly to uh, uh, to Sunbury and, and places like that, so so they can get the books. I also have a blog on there called The Metaphysical Traveler, uh, and I think it's pretty interesting. Um, I, I post a lot of things that have to do with my travels. I've, I've traveled a lot around the world, and uh, when I do, I always try to look for interesting places that are either – you know, haunted or unusual or, or just bizarre in some way. So I just recently put up a post about a haunted uh, Dominican retreat house in the Philippines. Um, so, so that's something people can look at. And my bio is up there as well as my schedule of appearances. Uh, your radio show is on there uh, as some of the places that I'm, you know, will be appearing in person. So that's the best place to go. Everything about me is on there. Wonderful. And what, again, again, you mentioned this earlier, but I, I really want mm-hmm. our listeners to buy your books and support you. What is your next book and when will it be out? My next book is Shapeshifters, A Cultural History. And it's actually available for pre-order now. Um, it's at the University of Chicago Press is the distributor for it. So people can go to that website. Again, go to my website and Shapeshifters is on there. And there's a description. If you click on the icon or the picture of the book, it'll take you right to the University of Chicago Press, and people can pre-order it now. It'll be in stores in, well, it's going to be actually uh, probably arrive here in the States around early week in May, first week in May or so. So it should be in bookstores by mid-May to the end of May. But they can order it right now if they want it, you know, pre-order it and get their copy now. <laughs> so that's, a, that's the next one. All right. All right, well, it's the time of our show where Joe Mills will ask a silly question. Let's play. That's a funky bass group, Kyle. Uh, So John, I actually have a a serious question about, uh, about humor, surprisingly. Um, as a fan of humor myself, I was I was changed for literally forever when I read in Robert A. Heinlein's book *Stranger in a Strange Land* that all humor is based on pain. Uh, and we've got less than a minute on the show. How do you feel about that? I think there's some truth to that. I don't know about all humor, but I think that humor is generally a way of us dealing with. Uh, uncomfortable things, bad things, maybe painful things. And that's why exactly in my course, that's what I try to tell people to do is to use humor in that way to offset what you might be writing that's painful or sorrowful or, or, or just uncomfortable in some way. So I agree with Robert Heinlein 100%. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, readers, I hope you go and buy John Kachuba's book, Dark Entry. And, and while you're there on Amazon, look at all the rest of his books. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Kyle, Joe, thanks very much. It's been great. I appreciate the uh, the time, the chance to come on the show. So happy to have you on. Shows. 
Thanks. Thank you.